0: On every album, if you flip it over, there's usually a logo somewhere. It's hidden along the bottom usually. It's the logo for the record label. It's the people who, mostly, paid for this album to exist. There are some logos that most people would probably recognise. Even non-music tragics would recognise them. You know, the big ones like Warner Brothers, Sony, EMI and others. They are some of the biggest music brands in the world with hundreds of acts on the books. They do all sorts of music, from commercial rock, to jazz, to pop, to whatever. But some smaller labels have managed to capture the popular imagination, like Motown, or Island, or Jeff Jam, or Blue Note. These labels start as passion projects, and they usually have a house sound, like Motown, who dubbed themselves the Sound of Young America. The 1980s and the 1990s had more than their share of great indie labels, In fact, indie labels from the 80s were starting to see the benefits of this 90s alternative explosion. 80s British indie labels like Fire Records, Creation Records and Food Records would find themselves signing 90s superstars like Pulp, Oasis and Blur. It would change the fortunes of those labels. Same in the US where 80s indie labels like Sub Pop, Matador and SST had bands like Nirvana, Mudhoney, Pavement, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr and more. The same happened in Australia. So many of the biggest bands of the 90s started on Australian indie labels founded in the 80s. Labels like Red Eye, Ogogo, and Waterfront were responsible for acts like The Cruel Sea, Spiderbait, and Tumbleweed. But by the early to mid-90s, there was often more than one logo at the back of these so-called indie albums, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes more. In the 90s, the back of the CD started looking like a Formula 1 driver's outfit. Because independent labels and major labels would get together to try and turn some bands into megastars and sometimes it was more than two parties involved. Why these logos all got together and how it did not didn't work out is quite a story. It was the 90s and there was a new scene, a new audience and gold in them hills. But by the middle of the decade the big labels had swallowed up the small ones and by the end of the decade. Many of Australia's great independent labels simply weren't around anymore. The jostling of indie and major labels would set the scene for the music industry for the rest of the decade. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week we look at the end of an era of Australian independent labels. Major labels ruled in the 1980s, and the indies were left outside looking over the fence. The major label grass was greener, with bigger budgets, huge recognition, and jobs that you could explain to your parents. Remember Michael Jackson? Remember Madonna? Remember Prince? Remember Whitney Houston? Music was leading the 80s globalization. It was the world of international megastars. You just lived there learning the lyrics. Thing is, the major labels were also looking over the fence. And the grass on the indie side seemed fresher, someone dyed the grass to a cool new colour, and lots of young people were milling about on it, talking about their hip bands and hip stores and street press and whatever. By the start of the 90s, that fence was looking pretty weak, what with everyone leaning on it to see what the other side was doing. Before the 90s, major labels in Australia were primarily an outlet for big overseas signings. BMG Australia, for example, was essentially the local franchise for Whitney Houston. Sony Music Australia was the local franchise for Michael Jackson. Australian major labels had some local acts but they were usually big ones like Cold Chisel and Midnight Oil. They didn't have a deep roster of young up and comers. The business of major labels in Australia wasn't really about signing, developing and breaking Australian acts, especially not in large numbers. It just wasn't the point of them. Instead the local game was run by some very successful Australian labels like Mushroom, Festival and Alberts those were at the top and below them were a thriving network of smaller independent labels. Because the 80s independent music scene like the major label one was going global. It seems hokey in the era of instant internet gratification but there was a network of 80s indie labels around the world who all knew each other and sent records to each other and passed on valuable word of mouth. Australian labels like Red Eye, Phantom, Citadel, Waterfront, Agogo, and many others were known to music fans around the world Record nuts around the world know these labels the way that I know Flying Nun, Postcard, Cherry Red, 4AD, Two-Tone or countless other 80s indie labels. But the 80s turned into the 90s. Nirvana came along, Triple J went national and the big day out exploded. Ratcat, Clouds, Hummingbirds, and others were knocking on the door of mainstream success. I assume the majors were also looking at sales with their pop acts going down at the same time as these guitar acts were going up. Around the world labels were seeing the same thing. It was the alternative boom. It was new labels like Sub Pop or Creation that was all the rage. Major labels rushed to Seattle and other music cities to find any long-haired guitar playing band to sign up. Some bands who got deals around this point with major labels barely played a gig. It didn't matter, it was a signing spree. Labels were signing up guitar bands with names like Crash Test Dummies, Four Non Blondes and any old stuff because the charts wanted it and the kids wanted it and it kind of worked. It just seemed like in the early 90s there were a new grunge type kind of act flooding the charts all the time. Here comes Blind Melon, here comes Soul Asylum, Here comes the Gin Blossoms. So the Australian major labels wanted to have a go too. But they didn't actually want to hire new staff and commit. And they didn't have anyone on staff that knew this stuff anyway. Plus, it wasn't like the best and coolest non-major label bands were just waiting around for a call from these major labels. They had all been snapped up by the great indie labels. But for the indie labels, they had gotten as big as they could. Take the hard-ons a great band who were on the critically acclaimed Waterfront Records label. They were often number one in the Australian independent music charts, but they couldn't make enough albums to crack the regular charts. They just couldn't physically print up enough. As Ken West of The Big Day Out put it, you can only deliver so much fruit in a wheelbarrow before you had to go and buy a truck. And the people with the best trucks were the major labels. So it made sense for everyone to get along and work together. And if there's one thing that the music industry is known for it's not getting along and it's not working together ken west's trucks were more than just a metaphor so much depends upon the wheelbarrow and the scale of shipping hundreds and thousands of physical product was a problem for indies let alone printing up so many records on the off chance it might sell so in comes a different sort of major label deal it was a pressing and distribution deal A pressing and distribution deal or P&D deal allows for a big label to press up a smaller label's albums and distribute them into shops. The major labels owned or co-owned all the vinyl and CD production facilities anyway. They could cover the overheads of a small label with no problems. They could sit on those extra thousands of copies that didn't sell just yet. So that was the P, the pressing, in P&D sorted. The big D, distribution, was getting all these products into shops. The major labels would just throw those hard-ons albums into the same boxes and the same trucks that were carrying Kylie Minogue albums into Blockbuster or HMV. P&D deals are also important for what they are not. There was no major label interference with the music itself or the bands. The major labels would make a small amount of money per album. Less than they would make for their own direct signings but if everyone sold a lot of stuff everyone would make some money. What could possibly go wrong? Well, this is exactly the kind of deal that Red Eye Records signed with Polydor in 1990. Red Eye Records, the label, started in 1985, working out of the Red Eye Records shop, the independent record store in Sydney. It was started by John Foy, who had worked at record stores for many years, moving from import stores to Phantom to ultimately Red Eye. Apart from everything he achieved with the Red Eye label, he's also a stunning poster artist. Red Eye's roster in the 80s was very much based around Sydney, particularly in the inner city around Surrey Hills and Darlinghurst. They had a lively roster featuring Steve Kilby of The Church, John Kennedy's Love Gone Wrong, and most notably, Beasts of Bourbon. The Beasts of Bourbon were a supergroup of sorts. Guitarist Spencer P. Jones was in The Johnnies. Kim Salmon and Boris Sudovic were in the acclaimed 80s noise punk band The Scientists. Drummer James Baker was in The Hooda Gurus. The least accomplished member of the band was the frontman, a young man named Tex Perkins. They were noisy, bluesy, aggressive, and I imagine a hell of a live band. They formed in 1983 and released their first album The Axeman's Jazz in 84 on Green Records. But they were a side project for everyone until the Johnnies and the Scientists broke up. They reformed again, like Voltron, in 1988 for their first proper album on Red Eye called Sour Mash. From their 1988 album, Sour Mash, here's Hard For You by Beasts Of Bourbon, first released on Red Eye Records. think about you sometimes and I go to call you up on the telephone. And if my call gets through to you, I hope it finds you weeping and you're all alone. I'm gonna ruin your whole life. I wanna hear you cry, I'm gonna make it hard for you. Drag you through the ship, gonna rub your nose. Hard for you! hard for you! hard for you! hard for, for you! The band toured Europe where Red Eye had a decent foothold. Beasts were the stars of the Red Eye label, who also released albums from other side projects and their friends. But the Red Eye label would soon change everything they were and initially it meant good things for bands like Beasts of Bourbon. Over at the major label Polydor they were just wrapping up their deal with the indie label Ruart the subject of episode 3. Polydor had spent too much on Ruart and they weren't going to make the same mistake with another indie label. But they still believed that having an indie label on the books was a good idea. It was a line into good bands who could have chart success. Polydor signed up Red Eye in 1990 and Red Eye, in turn, signed a band that were ready to be more than just a Sydney pub band. The first band that was part of the new Red Eye-Polydor deal was Clouds. They weren't part of the Sydney scene that had Beasts of Bourbon, they were fronted by two extraordinary women, Jodie Phyllis and Trish Young, and their rocking style had more in common with the Hummingbirds than Beasts of Bourbon. Red Eye was getting into the pop rock game. Their 1991 album Penny Century was a success, charting at number 23 on the ARIA charts and eventually going gold. I featured Clouds in episode 10. I love them. Here's Hieronymus, the big single from 1991's Penny Century by Clouds, first released on Red Eye Records. The first Beasts of Bourbon album on Red Eye slash Polydor was 1991's The Low Road. It would be their most successful album, just cracking the mainstream charts at 85. It featured Chase the Dragon, arguably their biggest song. From Beasts of Bourbon's 1991 album The Low Road, here's Chase the Dragon. the initial P&D deal between Redeye and Polydor soon expanded and Polydor would help pay the initial recording costs and marketing costs in exchange for some ownership and suddenly the line between Redeye and Polydor started to fade a little bit. Some P&D deals usually come with some sort of first look clause as well. That means if a Red Eye band was really really shit hot, Polydor would have the first opportunity to sign them directly. But the label's biggest success would come next. The Cruel Sea were a group fronted by Tex Perkins of Beasts of Bourbon, who mixed New Orleans Slink with an indie rock grit. Their third album, 1993's The Honeymoon Is Over, was a huge hit. Flip over your copy and you will see logos from Red Eye and Polydor. It would chart at number four on the Aria albums chart and it was backed by the wonderful title track. It's one of the very best singles of a decade. Here's The Honeymoon Is Over. By the cruel sea. Oh, well, you can't sleep in my bed no more. You can't ride in my car. I won't let you cook for me, baby. It's never going to get that far. I'm going to send you back to where Grandpa thought hell it was you came. And then I'm going to get this tattoo Change to another girl's name. Oh, it ain't no fun. Whilst the honeymoon continued for Polydor and Red Eye, other labels were also making a distribution jump. Several labels fell in with Festival Records. Festival was kind of a major record label but not and Festival Records had quite a ride in the 90s. Festival was founded in 1952 and was bought by Rupert Murdoch in 1961. Fun fact, Murdoch bought it from property magnate LJ Hooker whose name is still a real estate franchise throughout Australia. Through the 70s and the 80s, Festival Records had huge success in Australia with Australian acts as well as international ones on labels that they licensed like Virgin, Island and A&M. Through those international deals, they had acts in the 80s such as U2 or The Police just for Australia. But also hundreds of others like Tom Waits and The Smiths and Womack and Womack and super hip labels like Factory Records. Festival wasn't part of a big multinational music company like Sony or Warner but instead they were part of Rupert Murdoch's News Corp empire. But by the end of the 80s all those big overseas indie labels that Festival had distributed were being bought up by major labels internationally and they gave the Australian rights of those labels to their Australian affiliates. So Virgin internationally was bought by EMI and so Virgin Australia went from Festival Records to EMI Australia. This was the same with labels like a and Licensing wasn't owning and Festival soon found they didn't have much of a catalogue. Festival also made money pressing vinyl and cassettes for people but that was going away as well. Still, Festival had a local roster to rely on. Through deals with labels like Mushroom Records and Regular Records, who they distributed, Festival had huge local stars like Kylie Minogue, Jimmy Barnes and Paul Kelly. Losing the internationals meant festival decided to scoop up more local labels and local labels were ready to give up their wheelbarrows in favour of trucks with festival logos printed on the side. One of the most important indie labels to sign up to festival in the early 90s was Waterfront, one of the best labels in Australia through the 80s. Waterfront had this very distinctive record label artwork with a cartoon skyline of Sydney Harbour showing off the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Sydney Opera House and Sydney Tower. Tied to the retail store of the same name, it was a proudly Sydney label. For people around the world, that Skyline label was an exotic glimpse into a faraway scene. Waterfront had started way back in 1983, a couple of years before the store. The label was run by Steve Stavrakis, El Stav as everyone called him, and Chris Dunn, and they had lots of success in the 80s. Pretty much all the bands came from Sydney or close enough. On their roster was The Hard Ons, Mass Appeals, The Eastern Dark and Ratcat. Waterfront also had the coup of being the Australian licensor for sub-pop, the super hip Seattle label. So Nirvana's first album, Bleach, was released on Waterfront in Australia. They had the hottest label in the world and a pretty strong roster of local acts, but by the early 90s, that wasn't enough. The label Ruart came along in the late 80s and exposed the indie scene, signing up bands on existing indie labels who didn't really have contracts, just handshakes. From Waterfront, they took Ratcat and the Trilobites. And the Waterfront guys realised that they had to start offering something comparable to what Ruart was doing through a major label, or they could lose it all. Waterfront looked for major label support, but everyone had dance partners. Polydor had gone with Red Eye, Warners soon picked up Ruart off Polydor. Sony had signed up Volition Records that included The Falling Joys and would later pick up Die Pretty. BMG had a few with Australian Record Equities and Laser Records. EMI had a deal with the indie Image Music Group. But Festival Records, who were losing money themselves, would support Waterfront, but only for selected bands. It was enough for Waterfront to, you know, be a contender. Festival could print up enough albums and help with promotion. That was the plan. It's interesting that Festival's deals were only for selected acts. I'm not sure of this protected Waterfront, who could keep control of some of their roster, or Festival, who didn't have to pay for esoteric vanity projects. But at least two of those Waterfront bands showed real promise in the era of grunge. One was the Hard Ons, who were well-loved and huge in their indie world. So it made sense that their 1990 album Yummy was the first waterfront slash festival release. I covered the Hard Ons in episode 5. From 1990's Yummy, here's Where Did She Come From by the Hard Ons, first released on Waterfront, distributed by Festival Records. Sunday, she had to learn what she said. The other promising waterfront band was Tumbleweed. There were five young men from Wollongong with a love for Stoner Rock and Radio Birdman. They had grungy long hair and loud distorted guitars. They managed to score the opening slot for Nirvana's 1992 tour and were really set up to be as big as Pearl Jam or something. They certainly looked the part. They released a self-titled album in 1992 on Waterfront distributed by Festival. It charted at number 48 on the Aria Albums chart. Here's the opening track from that album, Sundial by Tumbleweed, from their self-titled debut released on Waterfront Records in 1992. We're looking at a bright multi-platinum future, Festival continued scooping up more labels. Half A Cow was signed up in 1992, with Smudge still the most prominent band on the label. They did deals with Blue Mosque, home of Die Pretty and Hoyden, home of Club Hoy. They also did deals with the very small Rubber Records and New Zealand indie Flying Nun. It seemed like a safe bet. These dozens of labels had dozens of bands. One could be another Ratcat, or maybe even a Nirvana or at least a few of the bands would pay for the others. Again, what could possibly go wrong? Not everyone made the jump from indie to majors. Phantom Records, Agogo and others tried to remain independent. But what Waterfront feared would happen if they didn't power up is exactly what happened to these labels. They couldn't compete and they lost their bands. Polydor actually approached Agogo, a Melbourne label run by Bruce Milne and Greta Moon, who also had a store. They wanted Ogogo to be their Melbourne version of Red Eye, but Ogogo wanted to stay independent and pick and choose international deals. So instead, Polydor managed to sign Spiderbait off Ogogo directly, because at some point the major labels got a better idea. You see, the reason these P&D deals or first look deals worked was because the bands didn't want to sign directly to major labels. The bands didn't know the guys with the suits and the fancy business cards. They'd much rather work with their mates, probably mates they've known for years, who hung out in the same indie record stores. Ratcat were Waterfront customers before they ever signed to the label. The distribution model was this middle step. You still get to work with the people you know, but they had the resources of a major label. The major labels were just a bank in the background with the bigger wheelbarrows. And this worked for a while probably most notably with a Sydney Hard Rock act called Killing Time, when Red Eye won the bidding war for the band in the early 90s. They signed to Red Eye over interest from other major labels or from Ruart or Mushroom or many others. The trucks were the same and money is money. The difference was the people and Red Eye was winning the people fight. I guess bands didn't want to be signed to major labels from a name point of view either. In the early 90s, they didn't want to be a Warner band or a Sony band. They wanted to be a red-eye band. In the timeline of our story, we are somewhere around 1992 and 1993. Clouds, The Cruel Sea, and Frente were doing great. UMI and a few other bands were starting to knock on the door. Festival Records had all these great labels. Nirvana, Triple J, Big Day Out. It was a boom time. Lots of bands were getting signed and people were starting to have careers. It must have felt like for the indie label scene that they had won. That the rebellion had finally blown up the death star and independent original australian music was on the airwaves infiltrating the record companies headlining festivals and filling the charts but what happens after the death star is blown up well the empire strikes back so two things changed one all these bands wanted to make better film clips record in better studios go on bigger tours and could you blame them They were being asked to compete on video hits with those expensive film clips by the Pearl Jam crowd. But all of that cost money and the money came from the indie label's paymasters, the major labels. Bands soon realised that their dreams were actually tied up in the financial support and the financial support came from the major labels. It was the music industry equivalent of let me speak to your boss. Bands and managers worked out that it was whoever was signing the checks that mattered the most. The other reason things changed is that the major labels stopped buying the labels. They just bought the label people. The early to mid 90s saw a new generation of music executive. Many of them came from the indie world, hung out with cool indie bands at cool venues like the Punders Club and wrote for Street Press or had some other indie connection. Polydor had Craig Camber who managed Underground Lovers and had worked at Ruai. Warners hired Michael Parisi who had spent time in the US working with alternative acts like Henry Rollins and Amy Mann. Sony hired John Watson who managed the Whippersnappers and had worked in independent distribution. Their jobs as a new generation of A&R in Australia was to sign and develop bands on major labels. The bands that these men signed, and yes they were all men, were not the bands who were commercially minded but were slumming it in the indie world. They weren't like Rat Cat who just needed a bit more makeup and a better film clip. These were weird indie bands that major labels would have crossed the street to avoid five years earlier. Polydor signed the Fove's. They were a Melbourne art rock four piece with a healthy bullshit radar. They also signed Spiderbait from Agogo, a gogo, a hard rocking three piece with no frontmen from a small town of Finlay in New South Wales. These were weird bands with weird looking people playing music that commercial radio at the time would never touch. They would also sign Underground Lovers, Tumbleweed, and Powderfinger. Over at Warner, they signed the most difficult band of the lot. Brisbane's Regurgitator were a three-piece who made noisy punk rap anarchy. Abrasive and challenging, the longtime Warner music staff apparently couldn't get their head around it. But it says a lot that they would sign directly to a major label. But that is probably partly due to Regurgitator's own love of subversion. Over at Sony, they signed Diet Pretty and Things of Stone and Wood. Sony would also sign Silverchair and start the seminal label, Murmur. They hired John O'Donnell, a music writer who was the first editor of Juice Magazine, to run it. We will get to the story of Murmur, but the label was basically Sony with a different hat. So you got Sony money, you got good people working on your record, and you didn't have to be a Sony band. But unlike Ruart, Sony owned Murmur, and Murmur couldn't leave for another major label after a few years. Same with Id Records, run by Adam Yatsi, which was a Polygram label, but with indie bands like Dave Graney and the Coral Snakes and Skunk Hour. These imprints like Murmur and Id became vogue for a while, mainly because it was easier to market for an alternative music audience. Like Red Eye, the logo for Murmur would come to mean something to Australian music fans. Rewart, an independent label already, started their own alternative imprint, Ra. Staffer Todd Wagstaff would sign UMI and Custard and go on to manage UMI. All of this is just labels. It’s just a logo. The money all came from the same major label pocket. But signing bands directly, or on a fully owned imprint, meant that the majors made more money too. From Polydor’s point of view, Red Eye took a cut of every Cruel C album, but they made all the money from Spiderbait. And after a while, Polydor realised that they should prioritise bands that they had direct deals with. And soon, Red Eye, who was the coolest label in the country at one point, was being ignored by Polydor, the date that brought him to the dance. There's a couple of songs by bands around this time that really cover this era. The first was by the Phobes, who released a standalone single on Polydor in 1995, called Everybody's Getting a Three Piece Together. It's one of my favourites. It's bitter and it's heavy. It talks about A&R men hunting down bands and making the point that everyone was looking for the next three piece like Nirvana. It was released on an EP that flopped and included as a hidden track on their breakthrough album, 1996's Future Spa. In October 1996, saw the release of Spiderbait's album, Ivy and the Big Apples. The lead single was Buy Me A Pony, one of their biggest hits, and it's sung from the point of view of a record company exec, and the lyrics was the kind of bullshit that they used to say, especially when they turn around and have to drop the band. The title comes apparently from a promise made by someone wanting to sign the band, that if Spiderbait had wanted a record company to buy them a pony, they would do it. They had the cash. Here's Spider Bay with Buy Me A Pony. Buy Me A Pony was a huge hit, but in retrospect, what were young Australian fans thinking when they heard this song? Did they all connect with this story of the dishonest record company executive? But it's a lovely bit of capital A art that these bands wrote about their lives with such skill that it connected, even if they were pretty obscure stories of label politics. And I guess the record companies deserve some credit for having the sense of humour to release and promote these songs that slagged them off. You know, the kind of sense of humour that had them laughing all the way to the bank. But in many ways, this whole episode is the novelisation of the song Buy Me A Pony. All the bullshit of labels fighting it out with each other. It's all there in that wonderful two-minute song. The big question is, can you be alternative if you're on a major label? What makes Spiderbait different from Whitney Houston? Because. It can't be the funding anymore and it can't be the label that you're on. The answer is there is no answer. The meaning of the word alternative changes over the course of the decade. And here with the mass buy-up of indie labels in the early 90s, the term alternative uncouples completely from the term independent because what is independent anyway? For me it comes back to the art of it. Spiderbait and regurgitator weren't making music to be played in mainstream media. But even that would change as the decade wore on, and a story that we are definitely going to tell. After major labels started signing bands directly, the writing was on the wall for independent labels. Waterfront went under in 1994, having been unable to keep up with signing new talent as the Hanons broke up and Tumbleweed jumped ship. Chris Dunn and Stav went their separate ways. For the festival years they actually had some ownership of the masters, and they gave them all back to the bands when they folded. Chris Dunn would end up at Murmur. Festival Records' many label model actually meant that they tripped over themselves. They were throwing so many darts at the wall that nothing stuck, especially when you had acts with bigger budgets, more promo, better film clips and playing bigger tours. Whereas Sony and Murmur went for it with Silverchair, or Red Eye went for it with The Cruel Sea, Festival just had hundreds of bands and nothing popped. Soon these deals expired and no one renewed. Half a Cow left, Citadel left, Waterfront died, and Festival, who didn't own anything, were left with nothing. There's still a little bit more to say about the last days of Festival Records, but it was the beginning of the end of this label that started in the 50s. Red Eye didn't have any big successes after The Cruel Sea and Clouds. They signed some critically acclaimed bands such as Drop City and Growl, but Polydor stopped prioritising these bands by the mid-90s. In 1996, John Foy sold the whole thing over to Polygram and left the music business. He had had enough and decided to walk the earth a global citizen some sort of indie rock version of the guy from the tv show kung fu polydor just absorbed those red eye contracts by then clouds were close to breaking up and the only red eye band that continued was the cruel sea volition folded in 1996 three years after the last falling joys album they also signed big heavy stuff the new project by greg atkinson of acclaimed 80s band ups and downs but Sony had stopped throwing money at Volition, and the indie rock bands and their dance roster stayed underground. Agogo wrapped up in 1999, but Bruce Milne had left earlier in 1995. He would end up at a major label himself, working at EMI for a couple of years. He would start a label in 2002 with Waterfront's staff called Infidelity. The so-called good years for these indie legends ended with their labels going out of business and getting day jobs with the major labels who would milk their talents for no cut of the profits. The empire had truly struck back. Now I of course knew none of this stuff as a teenager. I didn't realise that that Spiderbait song captured the heady signing spree of the decade. Or that they were big because of a confluence of indies versus majors and someone stealing that band from another label or how pressing plants and trucks worked. I just knew that there was this huge influx of new bands and that when I bought their CDs they had funny logos on them like Ogogo or Ra. And then another CD I'd buy, there'd be that same logo again. It was only in the late 90s that some of these labels would get a website. Otherwise what these logos meant was a mystery. Throughout the music industry, major labels have bought out indie labels. Be it Motown, Atlantic, Elektra, Blue Note or whatever. If you did a good job, someone bigger would buy it off you. This happened in the 90s around the world. Sony would buy the great Britpop label creation, home to Oasis. They already had some ownership and paid 30 million US in 2000 for the rest. Warner would buy initially half of Sub Pop, home to Nirvana, for 20 million US. So it's sad that those great Australian labels, in comparison, were worth little or nothing. But I guess in the end, none of those bands had huge overseas success, and there's lots of British and American labels I loved that bubbled under that probably ended up being worthless as well. It was the last years of these Australian labels, but they did some of their best work. The Cruel Sea, Clouds, Tumbleweed, Underground Lovers and so many more. This season I will talk about many of those bands. This is episode one of season two for a reason, because it sets the scene for the rest of the episodes. This is the basis of how these bands managed to make that great work. I have said that the aim for the podcast is mainly to get more 20 year olds to wear Clouds or Hummingbirds t-shirts. Australian indie kids should be snobby and proud of these pioneering bands the way that British kids are proud of Joy Division and The Smiths. And similarly, we should be snobby and proud of our pioneering record labels. Every British music fan I know knows Two Tone and Postcard. So too should we remember Waterfront, Agogo, Red Eye, Volition, Citadel and all the rest as an important part of our music history. And let's all be snobby about it. We'll come back to the remaining label scene in later episodes. What happened to these new alternative imprints? some newer labels that sprung up in the late 90s and the fall of festival records and what happened to all the major labels. Phantom Records, shock distribution, a lot more story is to come. Compared to the 90s, there's quite a few books, podcasts and coverage of the Australian indie scene of the 80s. If I can make one recommendation, it's the book Stranded by Clinton Walker. It's the definitive book on Australian independent music of the 80s, whatever the hell that means. Part history, part memoir. It changed my life reading it in the 90s, imagining all this rich history had just happened around me. Online, there's good interviews with many of the people who ran these labels, be it Stav, Chris Dunn, John Foy or Bruce Milne. I'll have a lot of links in the show notes. I don't know how defunct labels should be remembered. Bands break up, but their albums are still available. But labels, they just disappear. There'll be playlists and videos for you to watch on the website from these labels. But there should be more books, there should be documentaries, there should be box sets. To end, there was one other major label song that looked at this signing spree and alternative explosion from a more cynical and funnier way. It was by Regurgitator, the band that no major label really should have gone anywhere near. Because on their first album they opened with the song, I sucked a lot of cock to get where I am. It was their own way of capturing all the label madness in the mid-90s. So here's Regurgitator with the wonderful I sucked a lot of cock to get where I am. So, I'm back. Season 2, Up and Running. I really hope you enjoy it. And I hope that you can hear how much hard work went into it. Now, it's the bit in the podcast where I talk about support. This podcast remains completely independent, and it seems right considering what I'm talking about. So I rely on your support. There's a Patreon. It's very cheap and basically a support tier, but you'll get an ebook copy of all the podcast scripts many of which has lots of extra stuff that I cut out in editing because of flow issues. There's also a tipping service called Buy Me A Coffee. You can buy a t-shirt or a poster over at Redbubble. I'll talk more about these things in later episodes. You can go to the website to find out way more, including show notes for every episode. I'm on social media just about everywhere at Just Ace 90s, which is Just Ace 90s. And you can sign up for my mailing list as well. All the links are in the description. But mainly this week, first one back, tell a friend. Share a post on social media. Help me get the word out. That's the main thing I really need to start off with. And reviews on Apple Podcasts really help for discoverability as well. Okay, next week, our first single band episode for Season 2. And it's all about the Melbourne band Frente.